Today on Saints of Somewhere, I'm talking to Irvin Welsh, one of the most instantly recognisable writers of our time and the architect of Trainspotting, the phenomenon that became part of the cultural legacy of the 1990s. I've always felt comfortable in my own skin, but <laughs> to make other people feel comfortable has been something that I've kind of got into doing over the years. I've, n- I've never really been great at that. I'm Kirsty Robinson, and welcome back to season two of Saints of Somewhere. This is the podcast where I take you into the homes and workplaces of remarkable people who inspire and shape our culture. In each episode, a guest talks to me about their saints, their heroes and defining influences. It didn't feel like uh, just winning a tournament. It felt like a kind of catharsis for a community. Now Danny Boyle's Trainspotting film sequel is finally out, it seems impossible that it's over 20 years since we chose life and Irvin was catapulted from a man of letters to a rock and roll celebrity author a cornerstone of Cool Britannia. One of the things that you sort of, that you like about being a writer is that you're kind of obscure. I was treated more like a kind of pop star than a writer. I was, my face was everywhere and it's not a great thing for a writer. Life has moved on and 15 books later, he has long skipped his old neighbourhoods of London and Leith for Chicago. To see everybody, just to get the, the buzz of everybody coming back on set, it's a pretty amazing thing. I caught up with him to talk about his saints and to find out exactly why he stood up one of them, David Bowie, not just once, but for a second time. So settle in. This is Irvin Welsh, Scottish hero by way of the Windy City on Saints of Somewhere. So look, thank you, Irvin, so much for coming on. I've been so looking forward to this. There's been so much excitement and chatter around the Trainspotting 2 film. I saw a quote where you said that being on set was like the band getting back together again. Yeah, yeah. What did you mean by that? It was a kind of joy to be a part of it again and to have everybody back because it's something we've all been working towards for a long time. And uh, to see everybody, just to get the, the buzz of everybody coming back on set, uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty amazing thing, you know. It's not just the you know like the creative team and the um, and the, the the actors as well. You know the crew uh, because when you shoot a film in Scotland, you kind of use the same crew all the time, you know. So, and I've worked with the crew on different projects with, with a lot of them over the years. So it just felt like a nice big kind of sort of family get together again. Was there a particular moment that it really hit you? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's been, a, again, these things are always by degrees, you know, so we've all kind of um, kept in touch with each other over the years and some of us have worked together on kind of isolated projects and all that. But so it, it kind of sort of coalesced very slowly. I think um, the two parts that kind of when, when Danny and um, John and Andrew and I were kind of sharing a flat in, uh, in Edinburgh, and we're just going around the town, you know, I think that was a, a big kind of high because I thought, well, we're actually doing this, you know, we've given, you know, a sort of a week of our time and we're just living in this flat together, working through scripts and going out, having meals and drinks and all that. So that was a big kind of buzz, you know. The second thing was, I think, um, just seeing everybody on set, particularly seeing um, seeing Ewan and Johnny on set was was interesting for me because they haven't really aged. It looked really strange. It looked as if they just walked off the set of uh, the first Trainspot and moving on to this one. They, they just look so well, you know. I mean, actors do that. Lucky them. It's kind of, um, it's going to be interesting. Obviously they have, you know, but it's just my, my impression was that it just feels like they've just come off the set of the first movie. I mean, after 21 years, the revival has provoked a wider wave of nostalgia and reflection for lots of people. 
Why do you think this particular lapse in time resonates so strongly? Um, I think in a lot of ways it's like um, we had, we've had, we had this kind of period where uh, everything came about, came to be about nostalgia, you know, from sort of, um, you know, from the 90s onwards because, you know, culture kind of died. We, we, we packaged British culture online, basically. And, uh, you know, the politics weren't interesting. It was like a kind of neoliberal consensus. So nothing was moving on. I think the, the crash in 2008 kind of changed that a bit. And I think things are starting to move on a bit now but um, we're basically we're in suspended animation just kind of sort of um, you know regurgitating different things uh, so I think that um, you know the, the resonance of Trainspotting was it was about that transition really into a, a, a society without paid work or paid employment um, and that kind of hit the industrial working classes first, and now it's hit you know it's hitting the middle classes of professions. It's very hard for people in journalism and you know sort of uh, a lot of other professions to make a living now in the same way they used to be able to. So that idea for it being about a novel of a society in transition kind of still holds, and that's why it, you know it continue it continues to resonate. You know, and we're catching up with these characters twenty years down the line. I think I ought to point out that amid all this nostalgia, we've known each other uh, for a scary number of years now and prepping for this chat today, I've definitely taken a trip down memory lane. Um, one of the reasons I've been looking forward so much to speaking with you is that I love your tendency to defy and confound expectations. Um, giving you an example of Welsh on wine. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you, you commissioned me to write about wine. Yeah, not many people would know that around the same time, I'm thinking, you know, it's around the same time you decided to launch Porno at an S&M club in Vauxhall. You're also writing a I'm wine column, a wine for, column me. for me. Yeah. <laughs> Which was great fun. Yeah, it's kind of fun. And, uh, you know, I, I blame my cirrhosis of the liver on you. You know, I can sort of uh, kind of give me this, this great love for wine. But it's funny because certain things do come out of that. I mean, I was always a beer drinker before, but now I prefer wine to beer, and it's probably kind of um, as a result of doing that. Do you think you're a kind of a rebel by nature, or is it you just don't fit into a neat box? Um, I don't know. I think I was just always encouraged when I was young just to do what I wanted to do, you know, just kind of um, basically sort of uh, anything that takes your fancy, just kind of go with it. I think when you when you get that kind of encouragement, you know, you, you you're just kind of let off the leash a little bit, and you can kind of indulge yourself. And uh, if you get your fingers burnt, you know, you, you get your fingers burnt, and you just get kind of on with it again. And you know, it's it's the way you learn, basically. So yeah, so I've never. I mean, I've always felt comfortable in my own skin, but I've, <laughs> I've never actually. I've, I've I've always it's be to make other people feel comfortable has been something that I've kind of got into doing over the years I've, n I've never really been not instinctively great at that <laughs> Irvin we're here to talk about your saints your heroes and defining influences can we kick off with the first one David Bowie yeah well obviously he, he sadly passed away this year and uh, with a very kind of um, particularly kind of stylish Bowie departure you know a fantastic album one of his best ever and uh, it was almost like he kind of um Stage this kind of sort of whole rock opera of his death, which is a kind of incredibly kind of ballsy and subversive thing to do. You know, if you listen to that album Black Star that he left, it's it's pretty incredible um, how he kind of uh, sort of bowed out the whole scene. Um, yeah, but um, you know, if you go right back and you kind of sort of rewind to to sort of uh, <coughs> you know being a, a sort of young kid in in Scotland or you know, living in a council estate or a scheme, you know, it was like. Um, there's not a great deal of 
uh, you know, you, you feel that somehow you're constrained in a lot of ways, and that you have, you know, that there is this. It's what we we're talking about earlier that there is this kind of way that you should be or you should behave. And Bowie came along, and he was the great liberator because he kind of um, threw away the rule book. He said, you know, like basically get into the music you want to get into, dress the way you want to to um, act the way you want to, um, and there was just like you know, he gave you the he gave you the the kind of um, the tools to kind of to, to to experiment, to play out, and to sort of uh, to find bits of yourself through trying on other things, you know. So, um, you know, it's, it's like uh, the interesting thing for me is like that um, roundabout then, so many people kind of, you know, they got into glam rock, then they became mods, then they became punks, then they kind of became goths, and, you know, they did all these, they became casuals and kind of uh, football people and all that. And it was that kind of... Um, you weren't in a kind of box as you would be previously. You know, you could try on all different things and see what fitted and kind of find yourself through doing that. And I think that was, uh, that's the thing that Bowie sort of uh, gave everybody of, um, of of my generation. He gave us that sort of, um, that confidence to try out different things. And uh, you might look a bit silly in this, so you might, you might, you might not like this one so much but give it a shot anyway and um, you know the, the good parts in it you'll kind of integrate into the self and you'll grow as a result of that Tell me about standing him up I heard that you stood him up twice and you didn't uh, ever get around to meeting him in the end Yeah I never met him um, it kind of when Trainspotting came out in New York uh, they had a big party in New York and a big launch of it and Bowie was kind of presenting it basically and I was supposed to go there and meet him but I thought I don't really want to do that I don't want to meet Bowie in New York at a train spotting thing and I just I felt that um, I was kind of nervous about meeting him in a way that I'm not nervous about meeting other people I mean I, I think that I didn't want to turn into that 13 year old sort of um, kid the second time was he was doing the, the Glass Spider tour in Glasgow and uh, he invited me for along to uh, the ubiquitous chip restaurant for a, a meal I kind of stood him up again because I just thought I'm going to turn into this 13 year old kid and I also, I also think that some people should just be icons, you know what I mean, it's like I, d- I didn't think that um, that he would disappoint me as a person, I think I'd probably disappoint him, you know, because I would just be standing there, you know, I'd be asking him all stuff about, you know, the guy who played um, the bass on Young Americans you know, why did you not use him again on Low or something, you know, I'd be asking all these kind of stupid fan questions basically and I didn't trust myself to behave with dignity and decorum around him. And I think that Bowie kind of deserves dignity and decorum. It was kind of um, protection for him as much as protection for me. <laughs> what did you do instead? Do you remember? Uh, there was a pub quiz in the Windsor Bar. And uh, I went to the pub quiz in the Windsor Bar with um, a couple of pals, Paul Ricky and Liverpool Sean, and uh, we took ecstasy and uh, made a bit of a, a fool of ourselves. <laughs> Bowie was so prolific. He made so many albums and contributed to culture in so many ways. As someone who's also producing and continues to produce a huge body of work, I wonder what the key to that is. I think it's belief in what you're doing. I mean, you know, it's like, and, and it's seeing what you're actually doing is, is central to it. I mean, if you look at all the great, all the really great artists of our time, they're just, they're very single-minded about what they do. I mean, if you look at Bob Dylan recently, I mean, they gave him the Nobel, Nobel Prize for Literature. He hasn't even acknowledged that he doesn't give a toss about that. He's just back on the road 
playing and gigging and knocking out albums. Bowie's very much the same. He just does what he does. He didn't, you know, he, he turned down a knighthood. You know, apparently, he doesn't want any of that crap. He just wants to get on with what he's doing. Um, and you look at people like Ken Loach, James Kelman, you know, any any people in any kind of sort of area of art or what, what they're just into what they're into and they do what they do basically. I mean, I'm easily distracted, and I kind of I'm I'm not like these guys. I, I wish I was, but I aspire to be. You know, I aspire to be as single-minded and as driven as people like that. How do you make yourself keep at it? We say you get distracted because it, it must be very easy to rest on your laurels when you've had so much success. There's good distractions and bad distractions. I mean, I think sort of part of the thing, if, if you're a writer, um, some distractions are really good. You know, you kind of, you're, you're working on a, a book or a, a screenplay. You get an idea and you meander off and you realise that that's the thing you wanted to do all along. But other distractions, I mean, you know, one of the, the, the downsides about being a writer is that you actually, you become an author, which is like um, a different thing to being a writer. You know, it means that you have to actually kind of... Um, promote stuff and you know you have to go and talk about it and writers like talking about what they're going to write they don't actually write talking about what they've actually written why is that do you think well it's there and people <laughs> and people can say well i can see what you, you you tell me what you were trying to do but it doesn't actually work it doesn't actually seem that way to us whereas it, um before you've actually written a book uh, you know, or a screenplay. It's actually it's perfect. You know, you can you can see, all you see all you see is this perfect thing that you you know you want to execute, and that's why so many people never write because they're not prepared to make that compromise because they know that um, it's never going to be as perfect when they actually put it down in paper as it is in their mind. Have you ever had that moment though where you have pressed the last full stop and you felt it is you have reached that? Does that ever happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, you, uh, it's kind of, um, there's such a relief then, you know, you don't really think that uh, I've written something that's going to be a fantastic masterpiece. I mean, and they're all the same, you know, that you, you start off with kind of high hopes and you're just so glad to kind of get rid of them eventually, you know, you just want you, you want the thing done, you want, you, you want to get your life back because... Um, a screenplay, yes, but particularly a novel is, is so all-consuming. It just asks a lot of you. You know, you put so much into it and uh, you do get kind of a bit sick of it uh, at the end. You know, it becomes like the last guest at the party. You know, you just want it out of the house, basically. Do you get a strange kind of anticlimax once you've handed it in? Um, no, I just get, a, I get an amazing surge of euphoria because I think that uh, now I can get on with something else. You know, and that then... If you're a writer, what you really love is the blank page. You know, you, you, you love something that you can put something else onto. You know, you think, this is me. I've got a clean slate again and anything goes now. Let's move on to your next saint now, which is Leith. Can you tell me a bit about this district of Edinburgh and why it's here on your list of defining influences? Yeah, well... The, the great thing about Leith for me is that uh, I was born there and I lived there as a, as a kid, as a, as a young kid. And then my family moved down, the, you know, basically down the fourth estuary like a lot of people did. We moved from the tenements in Leith to the prefabs in West Pilton to the Masonettes in Muir House, which was a kind of, you know, you're basically moving further and further out of town. Growing up, I mean, it was, it was strange because when we used to say we were going up the town as kids, we kind of, we all went into Leith. You know, because everything that was interesting to us was in Leith. You know, if you went into town, you you could go out, you went out to Edinburgh, which was kind of the other way. 
in Edinburgh was like um, there was nothing really there there was just shops in the, the castle and all that stuff but when you were a kid in Leith you had the state cinema with the matinees in Junction Street and you had the salon in Leith Walk at, at, uh, with the, you know, the, the cartoons and the sort of um, the Bond movies and all that and you had the Hibs football ground in between the, the two of them so everything that was kind of um, was about that kind of community was all kind of based there really so all my my extended family were all there on a saturday you know we'd go in uh manty betty's and get some kind of mince and tatties and then either go to the football or go to the cinema it was such a great weekend you were looked after and you were part of this big bustling community and then you went back to muir house and at that time in muir house there wasn't anything there the shopping center was only kind of half built and um there wasn't a lot of social amenities. It didn't have the library then. So the Gunner pub had just opened. So there wasn't a lot of, to do there, basically. Um, whereas in Leith, you know, you had the kind of hard records. You could go to the record store. You could go up to, to band parts at the top of Leith Walk. There was just a lot of things going on. When I got to the, the age where I was moving out and sort of... Uh, of the parental home, obviously moved back to Leith. It was like a kind of homecoming. It was like the, you know, the kind of North Edinburgh diaspora, the kind of schemy diaspora sort of uh, originated back there. You know, I still regard Leith Walk as one of the, the most fantastic streets in the world. I mean, it's a lot more cosmopolitan now than it used to be. There's a lot of students, a lot of people from different parts of the world live there now. So it's got a kind of different feel to, to what it used to have when I was growing up but it's still kind of there's still something about it that um, is pretty cool you know it's just you get a really nice day and people start to sit outside it just feels like a big kind of Parisian boulevard Obviously you live in the States now and has your perception of the place and the people changed since you've moved away? I've lived in London most of my adult life I, I left Edinburgh for London when I was in my teens and um, mostly lived there with the occasional spell back but I think what happens is that, you know, when you grow up somewhere, you, you want to get out of it as soon as possible. You think, I want to move somewhere else. I want to see about the world. And because um, this is boring, you know, where you come from is always boring, basically. But the more you travel and the more you experience different places, you realise that it's not really boring at all or it's, that it's actually very exotic. And I used to think I came from quite a sort of um, a dull kind of drab place, but I realised that I came from a kind of quite a weird exotic and novel place where people kind of act and behave and do things that they don't really do anywhere else. You get into the kind of eccentricity of your home that you didn't really see because you were just caught up in the, the everyday of it. What does Beth, your wife, make of it? Is it very different from where she grew up in the States? Yeah, I mean, she she likes coming over to Scotland and she enjoy, you know she enjoys it. She's made a lot of friends over there and uh, she kind of rolls with it, you know. I think it was quite um, strange for her at first. I, you know, I think obviously the accents, I mean, she finds my accent really difficult and sometimes, as most people in America do, it gets very thicker when I'm back over in, in Scotland. The great thing about Scotland is that um, people are very, very nice to strangers, they don't like they don't like each other very much, but um, they're very good to strangers. And it's I mean for years and years I've been bringing people up from London. I've been bringing people over from America, and uh, they've all said the same thing. He's saying that you know these people are so nice to us, but why are they so hard on each other? You know I think that's something that's I think it's something that's changing now. I think it's different with um, with younger generations, but um, I think it's a it's changed with Acid House, it's changed with kind of sort of devolution and the move towards independence. I think people are a bit kinder to each other now. There is still that thing 
I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it comes from the old Highland clan sort of tribal thing that, um, you know, people are a bit kind of, um, superficially anyway, they're a bit kind of sort of flinty with each other sometimes. From what I gather, leaf friendships are special in that they're based on loyalty. And I'm thinking about the kind of mates of everything line in glue and Carl's dad's 10 life rules, you know, which is basically about treating your mates well. Does that come from your experience of Leith friendships? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, the two of my best friends are guys that I've known since I was six years old, you know, so a lot of my other friends are people I've known since I was a, a teenager. So you form quite strong bonds. In some ways, I think, you know, because the 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 generation, the era I came from, it's just when kind of manual work started to collapse, but everybody came out of that culture of the, you know, the factory in the docks and offices and, you know, where everybody worked in the community that they lived in. So there is a kind of very strong sense of esprit de corps that's maybe broken down a bit, but it's still kind of very much in the culture, I think. Just wanted to step in to let you know about the next podcast that we've got coming up on Saints of Somewhere. Radiohead guitarist Ed O'Brien joins me to talk about the pressures of being in one of the world's most adored bands and finding spirituality in Brazil. I was like a kid, magic does exist. My family were medics, and this is something that Western medicine can't explain. Check saintsofsomewhere.com for more details. Right, let's get back to Irvin. Can we talk a little bit about your latest book here, The Blade Artist? It's the story, obviously, of Frank Begbie from Trainspotting, and he's been rehabilitated from his life as a Leith psycho and found huge success as an artist in California. Frank's forced to return, though, to Leith um, when his son's murdered. In the process, he's forced to re-examine his roots. Did writing that story come at a particularly reflective point in your own life? I don't... I, uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I'm kind of... Um, I'm quite boring to interview in a lot of ways because I don't really know... Um, where it all comes from. I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm one of the guys who kind of tends to let the subconscious do the heavy lifting and um, not really think about things in terms of my own life and not really be too reflective on them. Um, it's only later on, really, when you when you look at something, you can say, well, you know, then, you know, I can see parallels or influences or, or whatever. But um, I mean, I think the 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 Begbie story in that book was quite an organic one, really. It, it was. Um, I'd written this Christmas story for the big issue years ago about Begbie being really unreasonable and sort of kind of horrible, basically, at Christmas time. And they asked me to write another Christmas story, and I thought, well, it has to be Begbie because I always associate psychopaths with Christmas, basically, because people just behave psychotically at Christmas. And I thought, uh, would it be a nice change if he was actually the most reasonable person in the room instead of the biggest nutter in the room? So I wrote that story about you know, everybody else is kind of sort of kicking off and full of anxiety and, and he's just actually being pretty reasonable and laid back. So I had to think about what what made him, how, how he got to that point. So doing that, I kind of rebooted the character and um, then I mentioned that, you know, I was doing all these discussions with um, Andrew and Danny and John about uh, porno or Trainspotting 2 and it kind of got me back into the character again and I thought, well... What if there's another twist in the tale? Maybe he's not actually become this good guy. Maybe he's still a bad guy, but he's a different kind of a bad guy. He's learned to control his temper, but he still likes violence. So he's a lot more um, cold, 
So I was looking at how that transformation might come about and, and what would be the genesis of his kind of pathology or his violent kind of dysfunction. You know, th- these things tend to be kind of organic, but there's obviously things that are happening in your own life as well. You know, you're changing, you're going to different places and you're meeting different people and picking up different influences and doing different things. There's always that connection between... Um, you know, your personal life as you live it and what you're actually kind of writing about and what you're thinking about and what you're, you know, you're reading and, and looking at. How fruitful it is to look into it in that kind of forensic detail, I don't really know. I mean, I think that as a writer, you're disinclined to do that because I think that if you write so much from the subconscious, you don't really want to kill the goose that lays a golden egg and know too much about what's going on, what, what your inner workings are, really. But would you say that there's a lot of a nature versus nurture discourse going on in this book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's like, um, to me, it's not enough just to make somebody an utter, basically. And to make them a psychopath and do terrible things, you have to kind of try and give the reader some material to explain why they got to that point. You throw in different things that have happened to that character. You allow the, lead, the reader to draw their own conclusions about them. I mean, I don't know whether he's a bad bastard just because he is his grandfather's son and just skipped a generation or whatever, or whether it's because of what, you know, the way he was socialised by his granddad or the way he was bullied by his brother, by his older brother or, you know, so there's so many clues that you, you can get given and I don't think it's just one thing. I think there's a, there's a whole package of different things that makes, that makes someone the, the person that they are. You have to show as much of that as possible and to, to get to the, the complexity of the character rendered as much as possible. I also found the way that he felt about his children. You know, he got two sets from two very different women very powerful and if I'm honest I found it quite uncomfortable he gave way more value to those children born from the womb of a middle-class educated woman in his new life in the states to those from basically an alcoholic woman from from the underclass right were you trying to make a bigger point with that yeah, I think um, in a sense, yes. I mean, I was trying to make a point that um, we have this kind of, you know, this horrible culture now that we've kind of um, we've degraded and we've depressed and devalued a whole section of the community so that they come to be less valued, not just by society, but by themselves, you know. And I think that, you know, that that's a, the whole tragedy of it. I mean, it's like, you know, you can have a, you know, if, if, a, if an orphanage got bombed and... Um, in Tehran, I mean, it would be, you know, there'd be a lot, of, there'd be some headlines about it. But if an orphanage got bombed in in Texas or or New York or Surrey, I mean, there'd be a different value placed on the lives of these uh, different kids. And I think, in some ways, you know, if society does that, you can't expect the individual not to do that as well. You know, and I think to me that was that was a kind of um, disturbing and chilling aspect for me to write. But I think it rings true. Absolutely, I really felt it. It made me feel uncomfortable and it made me realise how we can all be susceptible to those um, prejudices. Yeah, it was, it was, I found it very powerful. Can we move on to your next saint now, Irvin? Um, Hibs, Hibernian FC. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know football, this is a Scottish football club based in Leith. What do Hibs mean to you, Irvin? I was talking about I was talking about how Leith, uh, how people moved out of Leith and they've kind of moved all over the place and they've you know and kind of North Edinburgh and sort of kind of you know Cannon Mills and sort of more more traditional sort of parts of town. I think that uh, it's a point of contact for me. You know, it's like because I've lived out of Edinburgh over the years and because of that, I think that you know the the clubs kind of means means more to me. And it's not just like. Um, 
it's not just that a lot of my family support the, support them and all that because a lot of my family support Hearts as well, you know. So, but to me, it's a point of contact. It's like I can go there and you can meet with all these guys that you've known over the years, and from gangsters and drug dealers to sort of school teachers and computer programmers and sort of, you know, it's like people that wouldn't normally be friends with each other because they live in, they move in such different circles. They would have drifted apart years and years ago. They're all kind of bonded together through going there every Saturday. And I think that's the great thing about football and the great thing about being a, a football supporter. You have that kind of bond with people and um, you have that kind of kinship that would go if you didn't have that kind of unifying thing. We had the Scottish Cup win after you know 114 years in May, which was uh, an absolute incredible experience to be part of. It didn't feel like uh, just winning a tournament. It felt like a kind of um, catharsis for a community. You just felt something was lifted off everybody's back. It was like a spiritual experience, and it was a very, very weird thing to witness. And it kind of went on and on, and it's kind of still going on now. I mean, it's like... Um, they're having, they're having all these Scottish Cup parties around town. They take the cup around, and and, and, you know, and it's not about winning the cup because there's you know so many clubs have won the cup, and it's just been something that they've, they've celebrated. They've had a piss up, they've had a parade in town. This has been kind of something much deeper than that. It's been about this um, that kind of 114 years of it, failures and curses, and it slipping through their grasp, and finally finally winning it but it, it just seems to be a, a kind of whole metaphor for something a lot deeper some deeper kind of sort of release why is it important to stick with your team though when they are struggling do you feel that way in life generally yeah i mean i think that the, you have to have a very instrumental approach to it i mean i, I think most supporters when um, they get really invested when the team is doing well and when they don't they just you know they, they, they still support the team but they, you know, they, they take their emotional energy elsewhere so they don't get hurt so much by by that I think you have to be um, you have to kind of be realistic you can't live by proxy through a football team or a football club I think it's dangerous when people do there's a nice thing about being having, being feeling that you're part of this big extended family or tribe but there's a kind of um, there's a very dark side of it as well I think the, the great thing about football and being a football supporter is it gives you license to be an idiot or a lunatic for for a while, but you don't want to live there. You know what I mean? Use it as a you know see it as a, a short kind of daft crazy day out. But if you're living it kind of twenty four seven, if that's your identity and you're making other people into something different, or you're making them into the other, and you mean that sincerely rather than as some kind of um, ironic form of of joust or, or or play, basically, you know that that's the kind of seeds of fascism, really. You know, so you want to keep away from that, and it's it's a that kind of passion, I think, has to be used judiciously, and it has to be used in conjunction with a lot of other things that are going on in your life. Otherwise, it can get kind of pretty nasty very quickly. I mean, looking back, Hibs fans were one of the big casual firms in the 80s and 90s. There was the hooligan element to it and the violence associated with the scene. And it sounds to me, by what you're saying, you weren't interested in that at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was too old and too badly dressed to, to be a casual. Well, I wanted to ask you what you were wearing at the time, but let's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, it's like, I mean, you ask anybody at, uh, of, of, any certain, of any certain age, I would say between people that are kind of um, in their 60s to in their 30s now, maybe maybe some people that are younger even, but, but I think the, 
the way it's changed, it's become much more of a niche thing now. It's been, you know, it's now if you if you see guys that are fighting at football off camera, it's 20 kind of karate experts or kung fu experts or, or UCF guys against 20 other UCF guys. It's very, it's very kind of niche and very specialist uh, now. But in my Arab, it's very hard to differentiate, um, you know, hooligans from normal fans. I mean, hooligans were just normal fans who would fight in certain circumstances, you know, if they were kind of, um, if it was a, a rivalry with a particular mob or if, there was, if they, or if they were kind of attacked on the way from the station to the ground and all that. That would be in the kind of 70s, early 80s. And as it became kind of much more specialist in, in the 80s. It became much more about dedicated mobs wanting to have it. And that kind of carried on into the 90s. And then it's become increasingly kind of kind of specialist and niche whereas before I think it was um, just a big kind of daft mass rami basically I mean you've mentioned Hibs loads in your books what do the club think about that and the fans <laughs> <laughs> I think it's mixed like anything else I mean it's like um, I mean we live in a very corporate image and I think that like any organisation you know they want to portray themselves in the best possible way as this kind of sort of kind of nice safe kind of sort of family club so that side of it probably doesn't appeal the part of it that it does have um, it has taken the idea of of, um, of the club around the world I think has more appeal I mean it's when I do readings if, if I could do readings in like you know Rome or South Africa or San Francisco or whatever there's always people wearing hip strips and it just seems to be kind of thing that they do they'll come down you know they'll, they'll the Lord's a hip strip online, then I'll come along and wear it at, um, at one of my readings. So it's probably helped the sales of merchandise, and it's pro- <laughs> which is probably a good thing for the club. And it's probably spread awareness maybe about of hips a bit, I'm not sure. But um, to me, it's like kind of, um, it's not so much um, a football team. You know, I think it's like, it functions as a kind of cultural symbol. It functions as a sort of identity thing. It's a beacon about where you grew up the way you see yourself and all that. I mean, Hibs always, to me, have had a, a kind of bit of style. They've aspired to playing kind of attacking football. It's, you know, with a bit of flamboyance. Can we move on to your uh, final saint now, North London? What's so special for you about North London? When I first moved to London, um, I kind of moved originally to West London because my auntie was from West London and she, I used to stay at hers before I moved down and then I kind of started to squat in Shepherd's Bush. When I moved over to North East London, I suppose, like, like kind of Hackney and sort of um, Islington, Stoke Newington, that area, it was a very different area then. It wasn't as gentrified as it is now. For me, it was like uh, the big liberation. The interesting thing was that Having grown up in a very kind of sort of mono-ethnic place, suddenly I was in this place where people keep, were from all different parts of the world. And that was a great thing, you know, it was a great thing to go to work and people there would be from Jamaica and then you would go out for a drink with them and then you'd go to a party and you'd be listening to reggae all night and, you know, and, and you had a divergence and a sort of, and a richness in sort of cultural life that... Um, you wouldn't necessarily get back home. I mean, you would get it, you would get all that kind of music and all that because there was a lot of serious music heads back home, but you wouldn't get that actual immersion right into into a whole different community or a whole different series of communities. That was an interesting thing for me, kind of being a young guy. Is that where you were living when the whole train spotting thing blew up and, you know, in the middle of the 90s? I moved back to Edinburgh very briefly in, I think it was 87 to about, 91 and then I was back down in, in London again mostly in London I think when it when it really blew up because it was a crazy time wasn't it it was mad yeah I mean I I wasn't 
Mad Keenan actually moved to Amsterdam to get away from it all. I've moved there for a couple of years. One of the things that you sort of, that you like about being a writer is that you're kind of obscure and nobody really knows who you are and you're just this face in a dust jacket. Then suddenly, you know, we're, we're train spotting, blowing big. I was kind of, I was treated more like a kind of pop star than a writer. I was, my face was everywhere and it's not a great thing for a writer. I mean, writers really should be kind of heard and not seen, I think. You know, we should just be sitting there kind of banging the keys and getting on with the next thing rather than sort of being in, in magazines and stuff like that. Did you enjoy it just a little bit, the attention? Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, of course. I mean, I'm as egotistical and narcissistic as the next person and uh, I had an absolute ball. You have to have that internal discipline to say, like, I've been partying hard for kind of a few months now and now it's time to actually get back to work. And not be this face around Soho and, and Hoxton and Clerkenwell and all that anymore and just say, I'm, I'm working now, you know. And then you can re-emerge. What would you say are the big lessons you learned from those years and that period in your life? I think the thing is, it's like you have to keep moving forward. You have to get on with, with your work. I mean, it's like you can write a book and it become massively well-received. It can be made into a movie. It can be made into a stage play. And you get a lot of acclaim and attention for it. You can write another book the hardcore of fans will buy and they'll read it and they'll enjoy it, but it'll pass by the kind of whole general sort of um, seat guys. That has nothing to do with you. You can't stage manage or judge people's reaction to it. You have to go with it and you have to be excited about, you know, the, the, the project you're working on just, you know, as much as anything you've done in the past. And it, in fact, you have to forget all about the past, really, and just be completely focused on the thing that's in front of you. They don't write themselves, you know, so if you're if you're out clubbing and you're on the piss all the time and you're sort of swanning around and you're not really sort of doing what you should be doing, you know, I mean, you can enjoy that and you can, you can do it for a while. It's not real life, you know, you have to get back on with what you're getting on with. Do you think that experience back then taught you anything in particular about human nature? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in any kind of metropolitan area, you know, particularly, you know, anywhere in life, but particularly in, in places like London, New York, LA, they attract a very superficial and frivolous pawns class, basically, of people who want to be your friends when things are going well, and then, you know, they're, they're completely out of the picture uh, when things aren't going well. I mean, I've kind of, um, I've had people that have not, seen or heard of for from 20 years who are just um, suddenly getting back in touch wanting tickets for the train spot and two premiere you know so you get you 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 do you see the kind of good uh, side of people but you see the kind of really sort of crap pretentious and sort of phony side of people as well you feel kind of sad on behalf of the people you know the, the, the people that behave in that way because you think god what have they got going on in their lives why is this you know living by proxy through the next kind of event such a huge thing for them it's a strange thing that I just don't get myself, but it's not a thing you want to get kind of caught up in. Finally, leaving us now and with Trainspotting 2, you've described it as a movie about the infantilism of middle age. I just wonder what happened to becoming older and wiser. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, to me, it's, there's a lot of emotion in it. I mean, it's about, we don't like growing up as much as we used to. I mean, you go along to a nightclub and you can see three generations of, um, of a family kind of raving away, you know, you know, it's like we age in different ways. I think it's partly to do with the individualism and the narcissism of Western neoliberal culture, but we feel very entitled not to be old in the ways that we were before. And I think also there's the boxes of how we should behave at certain points in our life have kind of broken down a little bit, which is a, which is a good thing in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it leads to some kind of ridiculous and daft moments, but I think it's a very, very good thing that people aren't constrained now by 
conforming to a certain idea of what they should be like at a certain time in their life. So there's good things and bad things about it, but to me it's like um, the Trainspot in two films is a very emotional film because it's showing these guys who've lived through a lot and who still have the desire to do something or to kind of to get out there and do something and to make their mark in the world in some way to live a life where they're having some kind of fun and intrigue and I think a lot of people will identify it and they'll see themselves in the characters and uh, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what the reaction to it is. Do you think ultimately then we should be optimistic about getting older? You've got to be optimistic about life. You know, you've got to kind of take, take your, your life as something that is, is a great thing that you enjoy and it's to be treasured. It's not so much about being optimistic about getting older, but it's about being optimistic about the whole totality of life and uh, trying to enjoy it as much as you can. On that note, I think it's time to say you've been an incredible guest and it's been a total pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you, darling. Thank you. Take care. Cheers, Kirsty. There you go, Irvin Welsh, a generous spirit and unbelievably grounded despite such phenomenal success. Nothing of the hell-raising headness that people still expect him to be more than 20 years on. You know, I read somewhere that the odd fan still tries to slip him a wrap of gear when they pass him a book design, which apparently, unlike the old days, goes straight down the hotel toilet now. The fact that Irvin remains utterly committed to the serious and unforgiving business of being a writer, rather than getting caught up with the bullshit that can come with being an author, is proof that it could be no other way. He says we don't get older and wiser. Thanks for listening. Check out saintsofsomewhere.com for all our previous shows.